Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. I am your host, Tyson Popplestone. Today on the show, we are joined by Sarah Gearhart, an accomplished rider and marathon runner who herself has completed 14 marathons. Her work as a sports journalist has been featured in publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, ESPN, Runners World, just to name a few. Sarah's book, We Share the Sun, the incredible journey of Kenya's legendary running coach Patrick Sang and the fastest runners on earth is the topic of conversation today. The focus of Sarah's book is Patrick Sang. He's a renowned running coach behind Aliyad Kipchoge, widely recognized as the world's top marathon runner. I mean, you can't really argue with that anymore, can you? He is. However, what sets Sang apart is his holistic approach that he takes with runners, including Kipchoge. Sarah's first-hand experience at Sang's Captagat training camp provided her with a unique understanding of the tight-knit community, which remains largely unknown or misunderstood by the general public. However, what Sarah lets us into gives us a tremendous example that we can draw inspiration and guidance from. Today, during the conversation, a few of the things that we chat about is what motivated her to write a book about Sang and the athletes under his guidance, the reason Sang is often referred to as a life coach rather than just a running coach, how the culture fostered by Sang contributes to the success of his athletes, the immersive experience of Sang's runners and how these contribute to their unparalleled achievements. Man, it's a really deep and wide conversation. They're just a few of the things you've got to look forward to. Sarah's book is beautifully written. It's a masterpiece for all runners. So I've linked it in the description for you guys to get your hands on below. Just wanted to let you know as well, before we get into the conversation, we are doing our Falls Creek running camp at the end of this year. So set these dates aside in your diary. December the 14th, starting the afternoon through till the Monday, we're spending four nights, five days doing some training up in Falls Creek. If you'd like more information, jump across to relaxrunning.com. If you'd like to let me know that you're interested in coming, I can send you a few more details just as we finalize a few bits and pieces so that when we launch, you don't miss out. Really excited to be able to do our first camp together. I'm hoping we can get about 10 of us up there to enjoy some running, some strength, some yoga, uh, and hopefully a live Q&A slash podcast style setup. It's going to be a whole heap of fun. So jump over to relaxrunning.com, hit the contact button, and just let me know whether or not you're interested in that. And hopefully, by next week's podcast, I'll be able to say that we are completely open and taking applications for athletes to come up there and join us. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with myself and Sarah Gearhart. What is it in Mexico? It's um, 5.21 p.m. Okay, so you you really should have knocked off by now. I appreciate you making the time. No, 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 uh, it's okay. I don't have a 9 to 5 schedule at all. What what is your schedule at the moment? So at the you you said you're you're down in Mexico City to yeah. you, you finished a book proposal or you're working on a book proposal? Um, I'm about to finish the draft, so I hit like 52 pages. Um, I'm going to go through and edit it, and of course, um, I will add more to it. But yeah, I just needed to be somewhere and like kind of hide out in a corner without like being in a cabin in the woods around like nobody <laughs> it's a really fun city and I hadn't been in two years and there's a really great community here so um I just wanted to be here and try to get that done without having to deal with the 
frenetic, chaotic energy of New York City because I was there before I came here and it was just like really jarring on my nervous system. <laughs> I didn't get anything like significant done. So yeah, I oh. came, I did what I came here to do. Yeah. I've heard that about New York City. I, I said before I hit record, oh, I've yeah, never been true. there before, but I follow a lot of YouTubers and a lot of comedians. There's a guy, Casey Neistat, whose office is based in New York City, and he speaks about the frustration he has trying to record script and trying to record film uh, where there has to be like a monologue recorded because the road outside him, I'm not sure what the street <laughs> name is, true. but it's just constant buses and car horns oh, and people yelling. And it looks incredible, but I can imagine for, for an author or someone who's trying to focus <laughs> for some time, it could be, a, a, as you say, frenetic. and True. Maybe- it's like you want to be in a quiet space so that you can hear your thoughts. And it's hard to do that with like a police siren and like people arguing on the street and you know, things like that. It's just impossible, which is why I really appreciated being in Kenya because it's so quiet there. And, you know, you just don't, you can like let your shoulders down and like relax for a second. And yeah, it was, it was amazing to be there. I'm I'm so interested to speak to you more about this because uh, as I said, like I'm, I'm really interested. I've heard you speak uh, quite a lot about your experiences in Kenya and, and, and there's a few things that, that really stood out to me that, We'll get to in a minute. Before before I do, do you find do you do you write well in in really quiet locations, or do you, do you like a bit of a background hum? No, no, no. You know, um, in the past, I've been able to write from coffee shops in New York City, and like looking back, I can't believe that I was even able to do that. But granted, you know, they were shorter stories, so you can have a shorter attention span to be able to do that. But now, I just can't. I can't. I just run away from noise. And I think that when I'm in a quiet space, I can actually like see the material and I can edit, I can edit more clearly. And it just, it just helps not to have so many distractions around you. Yeah. From the interviews that I've heard of you, I I got the vibe that you could have been a real introvert character. One of the ones I I heard you speaking about just how you enjoy uh, going out for a run and and just having your own thoughts and not necessarily socializing. And I thought, oh, I think, I think writing seems like the the perfect industry for Sarah because the fact you get so much time to sit back (laughs) and reflect and plan and be by yourself and process your thoughts. That's true. Yeah. No, I think I am really a writer like through and through. Um, I, I think I'm certainly introverted. I definitely like to have a lot of time alone to do my work. Um, but I'm not totally antisocial. <laughs> I definitely like to have adventures and um, explore the world with people. So I think uh, I'm a little bit balanced in that way, but certainly I prefer to be by myself when I'm doing my work. Yeah. How, how long have you been writing for? 17 years professionally. But I actually interned when I was in college. Um, I interned for my college's uh, magazine so I did that for a couple of years. Um, but, you know, writing is something that I knew I wanted to get into from a pretty young age. And it, you know, I was exposed to books, magazines, etc. Uh, when I was a child, you know, that was on our breakfast table, uh, Rolling Stone magazine, Vanity Fair, Vogue, etc. That, that was just like on my breakfast table. And that's what I would like page through in the morning before going to school. And then my mom, she would take me to the library quite a bit. Um, so I got into reading at a very early age and developed an interest in writing um, when I was in elementary school, actually. Um, so I think it's unusual for a kid to understand their direction in terms of their career. Um, 
but mine, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. So I did what I could to pursue that in terms of, um, you know, developing my skills, um, in high school and in college. Yeah. So I've been writing for a really long time is my point. That's awesome. So outside (laughs) of that college magazine, did you have a preference to write uh, about sport or did you want to be a sports writer in general? Cause I know, uh, I don't actually know a lot about your background as a writer before we jump into the whole story about why I invited you on here. I was just curious to pick your brain a little bit about the, the background to, to what led you to, to where you are. Um, as a runner, because yes. uh, yeah, outside of that college magazine and outside of a, a, a few uh, runners world, uh, it's runners world that you wrote for, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, runners world. Outside yes. of some of the runners world, I, I didn't know a, a heap about you as a writer. This has been a, a <laughs> massive introduction to the world of Sarah yes. Gearhart for me, which has yes. been a beautiful introduction because I mean <laughs> you've you've come in into my world in style, which has been unbelievable. But um, yeah, what did that look like for you? The process of of getting towards writing about, um, you know, we share the sun. Okay, so, well, first of all, just to kind of backtrack, I didn't grow up wanting to be a sports writer, believe it or not. I actually wanted to work for Rolling Stone magazine because I have always been into music. And I actually, at one point, I even applied for a writing internship with the magazine. Um, So, like, that was the direction that I wanted to go. Um, I happened to fall into, um, you know, a different path. And my first job out of college was with a sports performance media company in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was hired as an assistant, an assistant editor. So that was really how I got into sports writing. And I just never really left the field. Yeah. That's unreal. So I got really lucky because I was hired before I graduated from college, which was pretty unique. And yeah. you were running all the way through college? Yes, I actually started running um, when I was 15. I grew up doing ballet uh, and all kinds of dance. And then I played soccer. And actually, like looking back, I wanted to be a prima ballerina, but you know, I'm short, I'm five foot two. Um, so like that was never going to work out because yeah, prima ballerinas um, are, you know, they have, there's a certain you know standard to be in that field and it was just never going to work out for me but five foot two allows you to still run some pretty decent marathons so you are you're winning that direction it's okay (laughs) it's okay actually I ran my first marathon when I was in college believe it or not it's a little bit unusual um so I ran cross country and track and I think this was my junior year going into my senior year uh one of my teammates and I we were told a story about the Cincinnati marathon which is like an hour away from where we went to school and we were just kind of curious about it you know that was a time when I did not understand how far a marathon actually was and when you run cross country what is that like a 5k it's so different and so we were just kind of curious to see if we could do it and so we went off and trained together and at the time we didn't inform our coach until like <laughs> after we did it I wasn't too happy about that but it was a really unique experience to run a marathon in college it made me really really dislike running actually <laughs> because it was so painful every you've run a marathon yeah i have and it's nothing that you want to hear about i'm actually training for a marathon now which I, i'm hoping makes it a more impressive story because my first one was was and and, and my audience is so sick of me uh, hearing me just moan about my first experience <laughs> but a long answer to a short question yes i have and i don't like to talk about that one because it was a uh, it was very humbling Humbling. Okay, so that's a really good way to explain it. Everyone's first marathon experience, you don't forget how painful it feels. You really don't. And also, like, 
the um, mental torture it can do to your mind. I just was not prepared for that. And I was just kind of questioning, like, do I really want to ever go through this again? And I actually thought, no way do I ever want to run another marathon. Um, so it took like a couple of years before, like, I kind of forgot about that. And then I ended up doing another one. And, you know, like, since then, I've done 14 total. So it's so funny how it just keeps bringing you back for more reason. I can see the appeal for something so painful on your first attempt. And even, you know, on the many marathons after that, it, it blows my mind how many people still love it. There's something about that. Um, I'm not sure. It sounds like the way you explained your early stages with your writing that you, you like that structure and you like that scaffold a little bit in your day just to help you work. Well, I like the, that planning element. That's been my favorite experience with the, I'm doing a marathon in October over here. And uh, yeah. it's the Melbourne Marathon. And what I've loved about it is I do a lot of coaching um, and I love yeah. setting the programs for the athletes that I coach. But one thing I miss every time I write a program, especially for my marathon runners, is I miss that personal structure in my day-to-day life. So that's been one thing that, I mean, I've got elements of it with with work and things like that, but it seems so black and white with a lot of the running. It's like, all right, well, if you want to run a marathon, you have to do your weekly long run. And it's just, a, I, I feel like it serves for me as a nice reminder of, of what's required to do it well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the structure is nice. The routine is nice. But also, if I'm going to be running nearly 50 miles a week, I want to put that towards something Mm -hmm. and not just like go out and do it kind of mindlessly because I just I like to have something that I'm working toward. Otherwise, it's kind of feels like what's the point? Mm, Yes. So so much easier to train when you've got that goal in mind, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think I've always really savored that feeling of being on a start line with, you know, so many people in your corral and there's that really special energy that I can't even fully describe it in words, but I've always said that I wish I could bottle that feeling and, and, and share it with someone who doesn't understand the sport. So, you know, it's, it's really lovely. And even though it's like so small and it's so brief, that's like enough. I mean, that makes it all worth it. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I often hear people say that with running, like if you could just bottle the experience and pass it to someone, it'd be a it'd be a pretty highly sought after drug. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's very true. So it's a, it's interesting just to get a little bit of a background, and, and obviously I've I've had the opportunity to know you coming on here and and hear a little bit more about your your thoughts and um, everything that's gone into it. So I understand that there's a, a little bit of a a, a collision of two worlds, uh, for lack of a better expression, between <laughs> your running and your writing and everything that goes into doing either of those two well. So it's it's no surprise to me, I don't think, hearing about your, your venture into the world of Kenya and particularly that of Patrick Sang. But I thought uh, you're going to do a lot better job of explaining sort of what it was that lured you into this particular uh, topic because, it, it, as we say, running's like a relatively unique world. Like when you get inside it, it feels big, but from the outside, not a lot of people know much about running. And then you get more specific and you head to Africa, which is where the best of the best, especially on the East Coast or Kenya more specifically. And that's a smaller world still, but a small world where some of the highest quality, not only athletes, but from from what I've read in your book, just people uh, spend their time, um, spend their days training. I mean, it's a, a beautiful topic to write about, but what was it that that, uh, that sort of drew you towards, um, you know, what turned out to be we, sh- we share the sun? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, definitely unique. Okay, so over the years, I've had the opportunity to profile, interview runners from East Africa, mainly Kenya. And um, 
It was in 2017, I believe, when I had the opportunity to follow Emmanuel Mutai at the Boston Marathon, who was at the time he was the number one entrant in the field. And I got to go, you know, behind the scenes um, and follow him over the course of the weekend. And just in conversation with him, I was just so curious what life in Kenya was actually like. It's really different when you're sitting across from someone and they, you know, have a conversation about it. They, they tell you like, oh, there are a lot of tea plantations and um, running at altitude, et cetera, uphill, et cetera. But I wanted to see it for myself and really kind of understand the culture a little bit. And so it was always in the back of my mind to go to Kenya and do something in depth. And, you know, to be honest, I really do think that there's a shortage of journalistic narratives about top runners from East Africa. I just find that in when they're profiled, it's more like it's always about their athletic endeavors and not so much the human interest side. And that's more of what I wanted to explore. And, you know, when I was thinking about um, this book and how I wanted to go about um, telling the story of Coach Sang, um, well, initially the idea was a little bit different. So I, I did kind of pivot for the book a little bit. Um, I wanted to do a prof, like a whole book on profiles of runners from East Africa. Um, but my literary agent at the time didn't really think that was engaging enough. And so I thought, okay, well, who's behind the talent? Um, and so as I was researching, um, of course, Coach Sang's name came up and I didn't really know that much about him, to be perfectly honest. And there isn't that much information about him online. But as I was reading about the fact that he was a collegiate athlete at the University of Texas in the mid 80s, I was like, whoa, that's got to be. He, I bet he has like a million interesting stories because what was it like to be, you know, coming from Kenya to Texas of all places in the world? In the mid-80s, like, whoa, I need to know so many things right now. And also the fact that, you know, he is self-coached to two world championships and two Olympics. I was like, that's wild. I need to know so much more. And not only did he compete in two Olympics, he also medaled. This was in 1992 in Barcelona when um, Kenya swept the podium in the steeplechase. And so I thought, wow, like, he not only is he phenomenal – coach he was also a phenomenal athlete which I think is like pretty rare and so I just oh my gosh my mind was spinning with questions and so I had this idea like I've got to I've got to know him better and we had a mutual um, contact and so I reached out to this contact and I explained to him this is what I want to do and he was pretty frank about um, coach saying is a really private person I can't say that he will agree to this but I will at least relay um your idea to him and then um, long story short um he coach saying wanted me to present the idea in more detail so like i actually sent him a an outline a full like chapter outline a timeline as well and my my proposal was like close to 50 pages so it was pretty i was pretty um i had a lot of direction i'll just say like i knew exactly what i wanted to do um so in wanting to understand who Coach Singh was, I also wanted to explore the culture of elite distance running in Kenya and, you know, sort of offer a behind the scenes glimpse into that world that I think is kind of 
misrepresented or misunderstood in Western media, sometimes oversimplified. So really, I just kind of wanted to be there and immerse myself and just kind of get a better, better understanding, better feel on what it's actually like there. Because it's one thing to read, you know, pretty briefly in an article versus to go there and, you know, to kind of like live that lifestyle. Yeah, it was quite unique. Yeah. Yeah, when, when you say that the um, the lifestyle over there is is oversimplified in Western media, what do you think some of the things that we we skip completely over are? Like, I I, I can imagine there's so many things for the sake of brevity, um, but uh, it'd just be interesting to hear from someone who's who's spent so much time over there now, especially working so closely with you know Patrick Sang and the athletes that are under him. What would you what would you say are the main standout points that are oversimplified here? Um, okay. Well, more like a myth that actually came up in my first interview with him, like one-on-one, which is like a four hour conversation. Okay. So like, there's this myth about Kenyans are so good because they just run back and forth to school. (laughs) (laughs) He like flat out squashed that. He was like, no, no. I mean, I definitely encountered, um, some school children who walked barefoot to school, but like, you know, there's this idea that, that's where the talent comes from, which when you think about it, it's like kind of ridiculous. There's so many other things that, you know, go into the reasons why they dominate so well, but there's that. Yeah. 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 So, so within those 50 pages of that first draft or that proposal that you sent to Patrick saying, like when you look at the end result, is it pretty closely tied to what it was that you originally thought that you're going to be speaking to him about and oh, working yeah. with him on? Totally. I use like 90% of that material in the actual book. Because like when you write a re- proposal, at least from like my perspective, like you're writing it as if it's like going into the book. So I definitely put a lot of work into that. It was like real writing for the book. So yeah. Yep. And so how long at a time did you spend in Kenya? Did you make multiple trips? Because I can imagine when you're stepping into any new culture, it can be uh, – I always like the feeling of getting bored in a place because when you get bored in a place, I, I feel as though you start to get a little bit of a sense of what it's like in the day-to-day life. Like my wife and I have done quite a lot of travel and um, yeah, it's sure it's nice to uh, dip your toes into a place and dip out and do the touristy stuff. But I, I love the idea of going to a place, actually being immersed there, getting a little bit bored, finding out where the locals eat, where the locals drink, what they do during their day. Just really, I, I feel like that's where I get a better grasp of, of what a culture is like. Uh, did it take yeah. you a little while to get a real feel for it there? Because I can imagine, you know, coming from New York City to the Rift Valley in Kenya, uh, talk about culture shock. It, it must be just a different world. Yes and no. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I really love traveling and I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world for um, some of my projects. And so I like to think that I answer an environment with an open mind, not like there to judge in any particular way, but more like be a sponge and soak up everything. Um, I took two trips. They were, they were extended trips though. So my first one was seven weeks. Um, and then my second one was six months, which is quite a while. But the thing is why I chose to be there for extended periods is because it's, you know, it's difficult to get to that part of Kenya. Um, not only is the flight long, it's also you fly. Oh, I flew from New York to Nairobi and then you either have to stay overnight or stay up and then take another flight to Eldoret. And then you drive like almost an hour to get to that area. So, you know, my point is like, it's a, it's a lot of effort to get there. Um, and so 
I just couldn't imagine like going back and forth like a week at a time, week at a time, like what that would do to like my body and productivity. And it's actually like a really cool place to, to station yourself because it's a lovely environment, especially as a runner. I mean, of course I appreciated that, but I was around some really lovely people. So I I didn't mind at all, but um, you know, that being said to also add to your comment, I don't really believe in, visiting somewhere for just like a few days because that to me is like a superficial engagement and you don't really get to know a place unless you actually immerse yourself in it and live the day-to-day lifestyle and talk to the locals and just be there and kind of observe I'm very observant I tend to be really quiet which I think people kind of mistake is being shy and maybe I can be a little bit shy, but it's really because I'm observing, like looking at every single detail I possibly can down to, I mean, this is really like detailed, but like how that person's shoes are tied, what color are the shoelaces, um, expressions on their faces, etc. Like I pay attention to everything. I will make note of everything because the idea is I want to paint what I'm seeing in words. That's what writing is. You're, you're painting with words. I think it really is an art form. Mm. And so if I want to do that, then I really need to be, I really need to be in it. I really need to be in my, in my research, in my work. And I can't do that if I'm just kind of slipping into an environment for a few days and I'm not really engaging with the, with the people, with the culture, if that makes oh, any sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think you just said what I was trying to say, but far more eloquently. <laughs> that was a really good, uh, it's a really good breakdown of exactly um, uh, what I think the beauty of extended travel is. So, so when you went there, I know you said you made two trips um, and feel free to pick whichever one to, to answer this question. But in terms of immersing yourself in a culture like that, where does that even begin? Because I, I, I can imagine that the, the day-to-day running, especially the camp, element of the training in Kenya is very different to a lot of the the day-to-day um you know non-camp elements of Kenya did did you go there with a bit of an itinerary of what what to do each day or was it a a matter of just finding your feet when you were there and getting into a bit of a rhythm because I'm trying to look at this from the perspective of an athlete and from the perspective of an author like obviously you've you've got to try and get your foot in the door of what they're doing as athletes so you can write about it more accurately but then I can also imagine it'd be an awkward experience just for a, a stranger to the area to come in and just be like, oh, now I'm here and I'm here for six months. Um, so how did, you, how did you make that balance and, uh, you know, I, I guess get into a rhythm of what they're doing on a day-to-day sort of level? Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't – so the camp is actually a global sports communication camp is in Captagat, and I was actually based in Eton. And that was because Captagat isn't quite developed um, for – foreigners like myself to go live there it's very local it's like a village um and Eton, you know like over the years it has become more and more developed developed quote unquote um because a lot uh well i can only speak to what i experienced um when i was there i was around a lot of elite european runners olympians like my neighbor was an olympic marathoner two doors down was another olympic marathoner from europe um, and so it was just kind of strange to be in an environment where it's like local Kenyans and then uh, Western style housing to cater to elite athletes who go there and kind of take advantage of the 
um, climate. Um, so, so I would commute back and forth is my point. So I didn't like, um, live in Kapchika. I would commute back and forth. It was about 45 minutes and I would get up at four or 5 AM, um, on the days that I would go to the camp. Um, yeah. Uh, but I didn't find it awkward at all. I was there, like I said, to learn and absorb and, um, observe. And because I already had a, um, 50 page outline, I knew my direction. And so I knew what I was doing. It wasn't like me waking up in the morning and, oh, what should I do today? <laughs> I always had an agenda. And if anything, in terms of writing, I always gave myself um, like word count deadlines for the day. So it was very clear is my point. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then within those days, I, I, it combines of what interviews – observation how many conversations are you having with Patrick saying or is it a balance of conversation and just observation I'd I'd just love to know because obviously um and and I've I've heard you describe him really nicely yeah you say for for many athletes like he's more than just a running coach and I think in the west the idea of a life coach can sometimes be a little bit corny we we think of um, I mean, as much as I love him and a controversial statement, uh, Tony Robbins has got a mixed reputation amongst a lot of people. It can be a, uh, I, I don't know. I just think it's a little bit of a corny scene, especially here in Australia. But the way you, you, you describe Patrick saying is a way that I think I describe a lot of the, especially my final coach, Adam Diddick. He's an Olympic coach here in Australia. And one thing I loved about him was uh, he's a close friend of mine that had a, a, not only a great knowledge, but a great passion for performance in the sport of distance running. But beyond that, he he wouldn't let you get away with things in your outside life, which could play an impact on your running performance. And and for example, he pulled me aside plenty of times when I was 19 and started training with him, just giving me general advice on structuring finances and getting a little bit of clarity about career and explaining to me that, you know, running's going to be in your life for another 15 years at a competitive level. So beyond that, like you're not going to fund your life with, with distance running. And, you know, there's a lucky few. And the way you describe saying sounds like, him working with the the best athletes in the world. So I, I don't know if you could speak to that idea of him being a coach and a life coach for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. So um, I want to read this quote. <laughs> I mean, what it sounds that? beautiful. Are you... What is that? I reckon it's the platform that we're using has the option. Welcome to the spirit. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, what are you doing? Wait, we're doing a meditation together. Okay, so that's funny. So, like, side note, you're going to have to cut that out or maybe not cut it out because it's, like, real me. I usually put on a sound bath every morning on, like, Spotify. That's how I start my morning. Put that sounds awesome. What was it? The spirit itself? No, no, no. I don't know, like, what the – well, this is, like, after the, the sound bath, like, just automatically plays. So now you know, like, I'm I'm kind of, like, a spiritual person and I love sound baths. I've never like, heard the phrase sound – what is a sound bath? A sound bath is, um, it's like when you're like kind of, well, you can do it, you can do it multiple ways. Um, in yoga, you lay on the mat and like you, it's like singing bowls and the gong and things like that. And it, it, it does something to your brain. Like a, yeah, like a hum like, at the end of a yoga session. No, it's more than that. You can Google it. Like we're like getting off topic. And I'll I'm going to Google it. These, but... And I've told everyone that I'm going to be speaking to you about Patrick Sang and the Kenyan athletes. And now uh, people are getting walked through a, a guided sound bath. I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> yes, 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 but uh, <laughs> we'll use that as your own. The, the real me. I'm yeah. Totally, yeah. No, that I'm was awesome. Send you this. I, 
every more anyway so I'm gonna listen did you want me to ask the question again because I mean that was a curveball for you we were just getting into Uh, I was yeah you got it okay yeah so so in terms of Patrick saying being more than just an athletic coach that is very very true and there's this quote from an interview he did with World Athletics that I think really summarizes um, your point and my point. And I'll just read it to you. It says, the whole idea is to make these athletes an all-around person. We encourage them to have dialogues and interact with each other to grow and encourage the development of different skills. You don't want to make an athlete who is great at running, but then comes but then comes to when it comes to social skills, they're like monsters or superstars who are out of touch with the real society. And, you know, his coaching methods, yes, they have been described as having a holistic approach. And I think holistic can be kind of overused. Um, but, you know, in his mind, this is something that I wrote in the book. In his mind, an athlete is not simply an athlete. You know, he wants to he wants every athlete to consider who are you? Like, that's the root of the question. Because at the end of the day, an athlete's life is very short. So like, what are you going to do after you leave the sport? So, you know, there's also this lovely question that I also put in the book is if you take athletics out of a human being, what is left? What is left? And I think that's really important to think about. Like, like how do you want to stand in the world? And running is not entirely who you are. It's just something that you do. So like, how do you want to contribute beyond you know this thing that you do mm. if that makes sense yeah it does I, I i listened to a really good interview with ali kipchoge on i think it's called feel good live more podcast it's with a, a british guy and he speaks to a number of elite athletes and, and what struck me before i knew any of this about ali kipchoge was he um uh, he seemed like an avid reader and an avid journalist uh, an avid uh, journal keeper and he he wrote and he reflected and he I mean, it's perhaps no surprise for the best athlete, you know, the marathon world's ever seen, but he just seemed to be a really detailed person, not only around his training, but around his life. Like he was speaking about how he would, he's always got a book on the go and he would take notes. And uh, I thought, ah, oh, over the course of an hour and a half, I was like, oh, okay, so you're so much more than just an athlete. Like, is that, I, I bet you some of that would be, um, you know, personality and a, a real personal interest in whatever it is that he's doing. But would you say, because you've rubbed shoulders and, and done some interviews with Aliad himself, like is is that something that you think comes from Patrick saying or is that more of a, a, an individual sure. thing? Yeah. So, you know, Aliad, and I mean, this is written about in media and he also shared with me that he doesn't really know his father and Patrick saying has been a figure of sorts to him. You know, they've known each other since he was a teen, um, and so that relationship has been very formative. Uh, and I always say, like, people look at Elliot and they call him, he's been referred to as, like, Yoda, Yoda-like. But then I say, like, well, you know why he's like that? It's because of who who he's been coached by. So just imagine, if you think Elliot is that way, just imagine, like, having a conversation with Patrick saying, I just remember my first in-person conversation. I just wanted to quote, like, every other sentence because – some people just have that thing about them where everything they say is like, it just strikes you. Right. And he's one of those people. And I just remember within like the first 10 minutes of the conversation, I got goosebumps on my arms. Cause I was like, wow, like this is going to be a really cool book. You know, in, in regards to Elliot and the whole um, topic of like coach saying, wanting his athletes to 
be more than athletes. You know, I put later in the book, I talk about Elliot's advocacy for the environment, environmental conservation. And, you know, like, come on, like how many athletes do you know that are stepping into that space in the way that he has done and continues to do? In November 2021, he actually attended the UN Climate Change Conference in, in Scotland with um, the president of Kenya at the time. And he actually spoke um, on behalf of Kenya, representing Africa's voice on the climate crisis. And I think that's, you know, that's what I mean about being more than just an athlete and contributing something of, you know, greater value. Like, how many professional athletes do we know of that are taking that step? I think he's a really good role model in that regard. Yeah. Does he have a little bit of a framework that he, I don't know if it's this black and white, and I can imagine a bloke as wise as Patrick saying probably has multiple frameworks, but in terms of working with a guy like Ali Kipchoge, outside of running, what what kind of coaching is he giving? Or is it just through, it's not so structured, it's just through their years of conversation and guidance that um, this more, you know, you said it, lack of a better word, holistic approach to training and life comes from? Yeah, yeah. You mean like what other, like what else contributes to developing the whole person? Yeah, I was just interested to know whether he, he sat down and said, all right, like today we're going to have a structured conversation around finance and around mindset and around, or is it just throughout the years of conversation? It's to these lessons, just Of course. Certainly yeah. throughout. One thing that I um, didn't put in the book that I actually thought was really interesting, I feel like anytime I um, meet up with him, he always tells me like another story like, why didn't you tell me that earlier? And I could have like integrated into the book. I feel like I need a part two. But anyway, one thing he shared with me that I thought was so interesting, because you know, he has a degree in economics is he wanted to start, he wanted to start um, like an investment club at the camp. Um, but that's something that he like, didn't get around to do to doing. But like, how many athletes are we aware of? Or like sports teams are we aware of that have this like investment club so that they can engage in conversations, deep conversations about finance and, you know, stocks and such and such. I thought it was really clever. I think it's really interesting too, the way that he, that the way that his mind works. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. One of the things <laughs> you, you've mentioned throughout the, the book as well is this idea of simplicity. And I feel like just talking to you for, for even half an hour at the moment, I can see how this is something that you would really appreciate because you, you strike me as the, the kind of person who you, you seem very clear on what it is that you're trying to achieve with your projects. And um, I mean, the fact that a meditation app broke out halfway through this podcast suggests I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, probably, uh, I'm probably on the money a little bit. But I, I, uh, I, I was lucky enough. I, I'm friends with, uh, I don't know if you know Ryan Nicodemus. He's one half of, of the minimalists. I, I don't know if I'd call him a friend, but I've spent a little bit of time with him when he was here in Australia. Um, we've, we're associates at the very least. And that came about because uh, I was so fascinated by him and the, the work that the minimalists do and how much they've changed my life and how much just a, an approach of simplicity in my own life not only offers like clarity of mind, but also, uh, you know, confidence in what it is that I'm actually putting my time and attention towards. And as I was reading and as I keep reading about this idea of simplicity just coming up in the day-to-day life, I thought, well, it, it seems there's no surprise that these guys are the best in the world because the, the first thing that you're going to want to need is at least the clarity that this is what you're actually pursuing uh, but then from, and I've never been there, so correct me if I'm wrong, but especially the camps, it looks as though they're tailored towards eliminating a whole heap of just the chaos that day-to-day life can throw at you. So you can be more focused on what it is that you're pursuing. So I guess I was, uh, in that long monologue, I guess I'm trying to say, can you speak to the idea of simplicity in the, 
the day-to-day life of an elite Kenyan athlete? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to what I observed and experienced at Global Sports Communication training camp and capped gap, but surely there is something to be said about the impact on productivity when you remove distractions. And, you know, it's very remote there. So you can't just like run off and do X, Y, and Z because you either don't have the opportunity, it's like not exposed to you, or it just takes a lot of effort to commute somewhere. Um, and in fact, this is something that I mentioned, um, later in the book, but there is uh, an elite female marathoner at the Camp Sally Chipiego, um, who said that she really appreciates being there uh, because when she's at home, she has three kids. She's not being bombarded by, you know, visitors, be it like family or friends who want to like pop by her house and like, you know, engage in some kind of entertainment. And then like, it makes it harder to recover and, you know, get her training done. It's like that. So like, when they're at the camp, it's the same thing you would experience when you leave your house and go to an office, except like their office is, is training. It's like that. Like they're, they're able to focus because they don't have all these other distractions. And so, yeah, that's why they're there six days a week. Yeah. And how are they structuring those days? Uh, I imagine like for a Faith Kipyagin and an Ali Kipchoge, the sessions are going to be quite different and especially the distances that athletes like this are running. But is there a, a little bit of a scaffold to how, Patrick has the daily training life structure? Yeah, so I can only speak to what I experienced when I would go on. It was either like a Tuesday or a Thursday. Mm-hmm. So Tuesday was like track, um, a track session. And that was um, at, that was actually on site. So they, they the camp, um, there was a, a dirt track that was constructed during the pandemic. And so it's, it's short of 400 meters though. Um, so like they would do their, their track sessions there, um, on Tuesdays. And so like be, just being there, like showing up and like seeing so many people going this way, that way, this way, that way. It's like Shibuya crossing in Tokyo. <laughs> it just kind of makes sense. Everyone's going a different direction and no one gets in the way. And it just kind of makes sense because, uh, so the, the training sessions weren't just, um, the athletes from the camp there were people from outside too, who would join them. And so, yeah, it was, it was unique to see, but, um, yeah. So, uh, on a, on a Tuesday session, everyone is doing something different. There were always multiple groups. Um, yeah. Following whatever, um, program he had assigned to them. And then, um, on Thursday would be a long run around Captagat. And usually there were, there were different groups, um, for that as well, depending on the pace. But I did see, I saw Faith do a really long run one t- one day. It was um, I think it was in December. It was like forty something k. It was like forty k. Oh my goodness! Did you watch her fifteen hundred yeah. world record the other day? <clears throat> yes, I did. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Oh my yeah. gosh! I'm so jealous that you've been able to rub shoulders with some of these people. That was a an unbelievable performance, huh? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that she's just something else. Yeah, it was yeah, crazy. It was crazy to see Jess Hull, who's the Australian record holder. She finished third in that race. It was just, it was wild that she was eight seconds behind. And that was, yeah. <laughs> it was just the most unbelievable run. Um, uh, the other thing, and I think this sort of comes under the umbrella of, uh, of, of simplicity potentially, is that over here, like there's constantly a new Garmin watch coming out. There's new uh, blood monitoring systems. There's the new shoes and I, I understand that like people like Elliot Kipchoge have access to all of this stuff because I've seen him wear it in fact a lot of the time it's where I hear about these new products 
but it, it, I've seen I've seen a number of documentaries. Um, I've read your book. I've heard you speak on this a little bit. Uh, the idea of gadgets doesn't seem to be a real obsession with uh, the Kenyan athletes that you've worked with. I mean, uh, there's so many athletes that I coach, uh, and this isn't a, a, a knock at them by any means, but there's a, a real obsession with heart rate and with the technology and with the recovery. And I mean, I'm a fan of it. I see where it comes from. I see where the interest comes from. But sometimes the idea of success leaving clues uh, can be, hey, sometimes you just got to leave your, um, you know, that analytical mind to the side and let your, your body just go out and do its thing. And that's the vibe that I get from the Kenyans that you've written about. They're not as obsessed with the gadgets as what we are. They're more obsessed with, uh, you know, just doing the work well and then recovering and then repeating that process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good formula. <laughs> Hard work. Yeah. You know, okay, so I can't speak for everybody, but in my experience, you know, I tend to get really anxious if I am running or racing with the watch and look at it and then that number gets into my head and then I can like unravel or whatever. Um, and I actually, I used to have a TomTom and I ended up just like throwing it away. Um, What's a TomTom? I didn't replace A TomTom, it's a watch. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And now I don't even wear a watch. I don't even have one, believe it or not. Um, so if I do want to track my run, I just have an app on my phone, but I don't look at it because I, I run with a water bottle that has a pocket and so it's in there. So I'm not distracted in that way. But, you know, everyone is different. I'm not saying that there's one way to approach the sport. Um, you know, and if it works for you, then it works for you. But that being said, running is a very pure sport. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can do a lot with just a pair of shoes. So it's true. That's a really good point. It's a really good point. It just serves as such a good reminder because even myself, I I find it fun to go out with, look, I've got it right here. I find it hard, fun to, to go out with my Garmin and come home and look at the splits and convince myself that I'm in the best form of all time and that my breakthrough is coming, <laughs> even though I'm 36 yeah, yeah, yeah. and training three times a week. But, yeah, I, I find that opposite side of that really true as well, just getting out there in a pair of shoes and in Australia, they like to encourage a pair of shorts as well. Um, but uh, with with the pair of shoes and a pair of shorts, you can go out there and get so much hard work done and see the breakthroughs. And it just alleviates so much of the stress that can come with that over-analytical approach to whatever it is that you're training for. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, over-analytical. That's very true. You know, and another thing, too, for people to understand is uh, it's not like the local runners are exposed to these things, you know, and it, and it's very expensive. A lot of these tech gadgets are very expensive. So I think the lack of obsession is like lack of exposure and like a lack of like financial means to actually buy them. So that's also something to, you know, understand as well. Yeah. Hey, just because this is something unique to you and it's not necessarily a core part of the book, I was just interested to hear from your personal perspective. What's it like sitting with a bloke like Ali Kipchoge and having a conversation about running and life? Is that intimidating to you, exciting? You spend enough time with it that it's not a, a big deal anymore? I mean, I wouldn't say it's not a big deal, but, you know, I've been interviewing professional athletes my entire career and at the end of the day, they're all human beings. And I just imagine that um, they really appreciate having a quote-unquote normal conversation and being engaged in a normal way. Um, I think he's a tremendous athlete, and I certainly I always appreciated um, sitting down with him. Um, and he, is, he, he has a special energy. Some people, they 
just have this like really calming, interesting energy about them. I can't quite put that into words. So I'm not describing it well. But yeah, same with Coach saying like certain people, they walk into a room and you just kind of notice them, right? Because they have this like unique thing about them. And he's like that. Sure. Yeah, that's so true. Mm-hmm. I always, I always wonder with those situations because if I ever meet someone that I admire or look up to, I, I always definitely notice that aura. And I can never figure out if that aura or that energy is because I respect and admire them so much or whether they just give that off even if they were just a, a random person from the street. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, some people are unique in that way. You know, I was recently in Jamaica and Usain Bolt showed up at this track meet, which I was really hoping he would do because I didn't, I haven't had, a, I hadn't had a chance to meet him in person yet. And the moment he showed up, at least two dozen media surrounded him. And I actually felt kind of bad for him because here's someone who is in his home country and he just wants to come and have a good time and he can't take one step without a camera on his face. Um, but, you know, he's Usain Bolt. So it's kind of like, that just comes with the territory. Um, so, but I did, I did beat him and um, I, I saw your you Instagram photo with him actually. That's a great I that photo. Was cool. That was cool. He's lovely. I would love to have like a deeper conversation with him another time in the, in the near future. And, and I, I hope that happens. Um, but yeah, like my point is certain people, they just carry this unique vibe about them that, you know, makes people go crazy at the sight of them <laughs> yeah yeah like my wife with harry styles <laughs> what, what i think is interesting is if you encounter an athlete or maybe an actor um who has been really successful and, and done remarkable things people just want to like touch that person like touch their arm just to make sure that they're like human or real i think that's kind of funny they just want to like shake your hand and like poke you <laughs> i've seen that it's kind of strange <laughs> Yes, they are a person. Yes. Uh, the, the, I, I know we're sort of limited for time. It's getting late in uh, in your evening over there in Mexico City. But there was a couple of quick things that I wanted to throw at you um, to, to hear your thoughts on this. The one thing that always strikes me about Kenyan athletes that I never see here in Australia, don't see much in America, is that uh, whether an athlete finishes first or second, despite the competitiveness, you'll often see second place running across the line and celebrating as hard as the first place uh, winner. And I mean, it's beautiful to watch, but I don't think I've ever finished second behind a teammate and celebrated for him because the truth is I'm not that happy for him. I wanted to beat him. And I I know that speaks more Mm -hmm. to my character than it does to anything else. But uh, (laughs) I'm I'm imagining, like I know every athlete in Kenya is not coached by Patrick saying, but this community vibe or this idea of paying it forward and celebrating the uh, those around you, like the successes of the community that you spend time training and running with. I don't know that it's just a unique it's a unique thing that I, I don't see any others do apart from Ethiopians and Kenyans. Yeah. So, okay. There was something that I witnessed um, before a long training run one time in Kenya uh, where the group gathered and Coach Sang called out a couple of runners who had just returned from Europe um, after they competed in, I think it was the Paris Marathon, another race as well. Um, one was a woman, um, another was a male and everyone clapped for them and they celebrated. I think one woman finished, she wasn't, she didn't win it. I think she was like top five, top three, I don't recall, but they were there like celebrating that that was a victory that was considered a victory. And I think that's really lovely. I mean, why not be happy for other people? Um, 
And okay, so let me just explain to you the um, meaning of the title. The meaning of the title is not meant to be so literal, which I know people are going to like misinterpret. But really, it relates to this concept of Ubuntu, if you're familiar with that. It means, well, it relates to unity of purpose, um, caring for one another. And, you know, Coach Sang says he, he, he describes it as a very rich human value. And I think that it's important to understand at the end of the day, we are all part of a, a greater whole. And I really appreciate the concepts, principles of solidarity and compassion and respect. And, you know, those are all principles that I wanted to weave into the book. That's what I noticed um, the way his athletes operate, the way that he is. And, you know, we share the sun. I think it's really unexpected as well for a sports title. And it's, it was meant, it was meant for, I want people to really like think about it, ruminate about it. Yeah. It was so cool. It's funny you say that because before I knew anything about what it meant, I thought that is an unreal title. And I think it helps. I was going to ask you about who did the cover as well. Cause the cover is, is awesome. Like it, it just stands out. It looks unbelievable. Yeah, so it was a design firm in Portland. But I remember waking up and like seeing the email of here's the sample. And I was kind of like crossing my fingers that it would be it would be nice because you don't always – I had reference photos that I had shared. You don't always know if people are going to understand what you want. And so I remember opening the file and like, oh, God, it felt like a present. It felt like I was opening a present. Yeah. I really awesome. love art and I really love art and design. Um, and I want to try to like cross pollinate that with, with sports writing as much as I can. And um, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really beautiful cover. I love it. I really yeah. love it. Well, for, for everyone listening who hasn't got their hands on it yet, I'm going to link it in the description below. Is there a preference to where you want people to buy? I don't know. I know it's everywhere, but is it better to buy from your website? Is it better to buy from Amazon or just go buy it wherever you get it from? wherever you get it from. But, you know, I always like to say, if you can support your local bookshop, do that. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you're an absolute legend. I'm, I'm really pumped. I know you said that uh, yeah, you got a project or a proposal in the works at the moment. So I'm excited that uh, yeah, you're now on my radar and, and my audience's radar. It's, uh, it's really exciting. The book was unbelievable. The cover's unbelievable. The story's amazing. So I, I really appreciate you, you stopping by and sharing some of the, uh, the stories from, you know, the writing process and the trips themselves. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I, I had a lovely time speaking with you. I really appreciate it. Hey, right back at you. I'll leave you to it. I'll see you later, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.